All right, I, I really need you to pay attention today because the first part of this sermon is going to sound an awful lot like an academic lecture. But I believe it is absolutely necessary to understand the text that is before us this morning. In fact, I'll make a deal with you. If you promise to pay careful attention this week, I promise not to preach next week. (laughs) Scott Burns is scheduled to preach the Christmas message. He's been on the calendar for a year, so he's been working on it that long. It's going to be really, really good. But I need you to be with me today. That's why I wore my bow tie. (laughs) Give you something to do. Make fun of it. Whatever. Hermeneutics is a $2 theological term which basically refers to the science of biblical interpretation. Science of biblical interpretation. If you took a hermeneutics class at Bible college or seminary, they would teach you how to read and interpret the Bible. Now, one of the first things that class would teach you is is that the Bible is a historical, cultural, and grammatical book. That means that the Bible was written within a certain history, within a certain culture and within a certain language. And in order for us to fully and properly understand the Bible, we must make every effort to know the history, culture, and language of the book. For example, historically it was written over a 1,500-year period covering creation through the first century. Yes, there are some prophecies that take us to the end of time. But that that book largely covers the history of the nation of Israel from about 2100 B.C., that's in Genesis 12, to 100 A.D. Culturally, it is largely a Hebrew book written within ancient Palestine and Hellenistic or Greek cultures. And of course, grammatically... It is written in Hebrew and Greek with some portions in Aramaic. So again, in order to best understand the Bible, we must try to understand the historical, cultural, and linguistic context within which the book was written. Last week, I said it this way several times, we must not be ignorant of history. Now, a further challenge of studying the Bible within its context is that we ourselves live within a certain history, culture, and language. Most of us have lived within the 20th and 21st centuries. In fact, I'd probably say like all of us. Most of us have been raised largely within the United States American culture, which means most of us speak English. In fact, being good Americans... We only speak English. And so our natural tendency is to read the Bible through our historical, cultural, and grammatical lenses. That is within our context. Yes, it is true that the Bible 
Uh, as God's inerrant word is a book for all people of all time, but it was still written within its own context. So we must be very careful as we study it, as we study it, um, to not read the present, namely our history and our culture and our language, into the Bible. That's called anachronism, to read the present into the past. Are, are you with me? You, you, you got to be with me or I'm preaching next week. <laughs> so we come to a text today and our immediate response is to read our American history and our American culture of liberty into the text. Look at it with me. Colossians 3, 22 to 25 is where we are this morning. And the first word is to us repugnant, slaves. And a few words later, almost equally repugnant is the word masters. The Bible actually addresses slaves and masters. It actually says these words, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters. What? And within our history and culture, we can't help but squirm just a little bit in our seats. The idea of slavery to us is repulsive, and it should be within our American history and culture. And so... Well-intentioned people looking at this text, others like it in the Bible, suggest that the Bible supports, affirms, condones, regulates, and even created the horrendous institution of slavery. Opponents of Christianity often point to these passages to attack the authority, why even the morality of the Bible. It is, it is culturally and morally antiquated, Here's the problem. Most people, Christians and non-Christians alike, would agree that slavery, one person owning another as property, is wrong. It's evil. It's, it's immoral. This book, therefore, is antiquated. It should be dismissed. Well, at least parts of it. Parts of it are in error and must be updated or altogether ignored with other things like marriage and Sexual preference and stuff like that. In response, I'm suggesting that we must avoid anachronism. That is reading our history and our culture into the history and culture of the Bible. Said another way, we must not be ignorant of history. Now, about a year and a half ago, we were studying the book of Ephesians, which Paul wrote about the same time that he wrote Colossians. And in chapter 6 of that letter, he said a lot of the same things that he says in chapter 3 of Colossians. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time repeating that sermon. I read it again this week, and it was like really good. <laughs> and, and it's still available on podcast. I will, however, remind us of some of the, uh, of the following salient points. Today... I will attempt to do the following four things, okay? Following four things. First, we must compare 
Slavery in the Bible was slavery in our context with which we are most familiar because we have American history every year at school. Were they the same thing? And by doing that, you see, we will examine the history and culture of the Bible absolutely necessary. Second, I will then seek to teach this text within that context. Third, and I didn't do this when I did Ephesians chapter 6, I will ask a very important question. Does Paul really affirm slavery? And then I will seek to apply some relevant principles for us today and our submission to authority in our working environment. So let's begin by answering the first question, was slavery at the time of Paul different than slavery in our pre-Civil War South? And the answer is a resounding yes. Consider the following significant differences. First, slavery in the Greek and Roman cultures was not a matter of race. In the American South, slaves were primarily black Africans who were forcibly taken from their homelands and enslaved. Horrendous. Awful. In the society that Paul addressed, race was never the issue. Slaves came from every quarter to include Greeks and Romans. The most common source of uh, slaves were, truthfully, prisoners of war, uh, while others were rescued infants that had been abandoned. Others sold themselves into slavery. Think indentured servants. Second, most ancient slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetimes, usually by the time they were 30 years of age. In fact, free, freed slaves caused such a burden on the economy that Caesar Augustus issued a decree, different than Luke chapter 2, a decree limiting the number of slaves that could be freed each year. He, requ <coughs> he required that slaves be at least 30 years of age. Of course, we know that slaves in our country were so for life, both they and their descendants. Third, Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Unlike slaves in our own country, they were just manual laborers. At Paul's time, they were like doctors and teachers and accountants and administrators, and they, they managed households, things like that. Fourth, which leads to the fourth one, many slaves received education and training for their specialized skill because, you see, this would benefit both the master and the slave. Of course, again, in our country, slaves were simply treated as property, as animals. Horrendous. As a result of this training, many ancient slaves, when freed, had marketable skills. Many became Roman citizens. Many maintained their working relationship with their former masters. All this leads to the last statement that I'm going to make that is going to sound a bit provocative. Understand that I have a deep and abiding hatred for prejudice of any kind to include slavery, that it was an abominable part of our country's history. But it was different in the ancient Near East during the time that Paul wrote 
such that I can say, and here's the provocative part, slavery was actually beneficial to most slaves. It can actually be said that while slavery in our South was for the economic benefit of the slave owners, slavery in the first century was oft, I mean, often provided economic relief to slaves. Yes, there were those who were horribly mistreated, but many found this, their situations not only tolerable, but advantageous, helpful. Uh, many, um, many found it economically to their own advantage to belong to somebody else. Because, you see, the master was responsible for their care and well-being. Many found freedom a lot worse than slavery. That's why Augustus issued that decree. This also helps explain why Paul can refer to himself and, frankly, us as slaves of Jesus Christ. Because of our understandable disdain for the institution of slavery, modern translations often translate the word slave as servant or, or bond servant, which I suppose is fine, but it ain't true. Uh, the, the, the fact is, while we are children of God joining us with Christ, we are also slaves. And there is great benefit to that. He is the master. He owns us. And as such, he is responsible for my care and well-being. I don't know about you, but I'm frankly quite fine being owned by Jesus. We also have to understand that slavery was woven into the fabric of society at this time. It's estimated that as many as one-third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Estimates as high as 60 million people. It was the way the economy functioned. And while there was ownership, it was typically not the brutal, forced slavery of a specific race. Now, now, the widespread practice of slavery does not give moral justification for its existence. Slavery always involves the ownership of one uh, uh, by another that results in the deprivation of freedom. Slaves possessed few legal rights. They lacked honor. They were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate. They were goaded into compliance through intimidation and threats. There were all kinds of problems and mistreatments and, and exploitations. I want to be very clear. I am not condoning slavery. I am suggesting it was different than our recent history. Nor do I believe, nor do I believe that the Bible created, promotes, or condones slavery. Reg regulating humane treatment in a broken world does not condone the institution. You see, when Paul addresses slavery, he never gives a theologi theological justification for it. He simply assumes its presence in society and helps believers understand what it means to live as Christians within that environment. He simply casts a vision for how slaves and slave owners should live out their Christian lives within the constraints of the prevailing social and economic system of the day. This is, this is critically important. You see, Paul and Jesus himself, by the way, do give a theological basis for the institution of marriage. 
that we talked about last week. In fact, it is a clear biblical fact that God created marriage. The Bible condones, affirms, and regulates it. It is firmly rooted in the creation narrative, and both Paul and Jesus used that theological foundation to teach such things as one man to one woman for life, which is why, by the way, the principles of marriage that we talked about last week are still relevant for today. This is, this is really important. Some say, just like we got rid of slavery, we need to get rid of this understanding of... No. But with slavery, we have instruction this morning within a system. We have neither precept nor permission for the institution. And so today, the institution has rightly been abolished. I, I say that, but we know that slavery does exist in a variety of forms around the world today. As I remember the number, something like 26 million people and Christians, Christians, as always, have led the fight in the abolition of slavery. We must not be ignorant of history. And so with all of that in mind, all of that with a backdrop, let's take a few minutes to look at Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Read it with me. It'll sound a little different. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We have been looking last week and this week at the, at the household code. Most households at this time had husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and domestic slaves. Now, we remember from last week that such codes regulating the homes existed outside of the Bible, but those outside of the Bible were highly patriarchal and hierarchical. Husbands, fathers, masters, and that was usually like the same guy, had all of the all of the privileges and power and wives and, and children and slaves had all of the, well, all the servile duties. It was into this culture that Paul writes, addressing the duties of each person within the household. And quite different, indeed, shockingly different, he addresses the duties of the husband, father, and master. Nobody did that. Now, we're going to look at the master next time, a couple of weeks. We remember that he addresses three pairs, wives and husbands, children and fathers, um, slaves and masters. And in each pair, he addresses the, the, the subordinate first. That is the one submitting or obeying, followed by the one who is supposed to be leading. So this week, he addresses the first one in that third pair, slaves. Basically, he uses the following uh, train of thought. He gives the command, obey. 
And then he gives, talks about the quality of their obedience and then the, um, the basis for their obedience and then the reward for their obedience. So we're going uh, to look quickly at those four points followed by some intriguing implications of what Paul writes regarding the institution of slavery. If you don't typically take notes when we get to that, I encourage you to do that. Because uh, opponents of Christianity use texts like this to tear down the Bible, and they're wrong. And you need to know why. And then we'll close with some appropriate applications to us as people under authority. So point one, the command. He gave basically the same, or he gives the same command uh, to slaves that he gave to children. He uses, in fact, the same word, hupakua, which, remember, means to listen under. Basically means to listen and do what you're told. He even adds the same qualification, the same phrase, in all things. Okay. I didn't say this last week, but obedience to authority on earth is always under greater divine authority. In other words, within any authority structure, there is always a higher authority, ultimately God. So inasmuch as commands given, whether to wives, children, or slaves, are consistent with God's commands, as long as they are right and good and, and moral, as long as they are not inconsistent with God and His character, then we under authority obey. But that also means if one in authority gives us a command which clearly violates the word of God and the character of God, we simply disobey because there's always a higher authority. But in all things good and right, slaves, obey. Second, Paul gives the quality of that obedience in the second part of verse 22. Obey in all things, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. And it's actually almost the same words he uses in Ephesians 6, where it's translated not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Same words. I don't know why it's translated differently. The word eye service, many think that Paul made up. It's a compound word for eye and slave. So it's literally um, eye slaves. In other words, it's people who work whenever the eye of the master is on them. And Paul says, don't do that. And, and don't obey as those who merely please men. Again, another compound word. Don't just be men pleasers. And everything that you do, do it sincerely from the heart with everything in you. Not with external show, but from the heart. There is to be proper motivation. Obey with pure intentions and integrity and singleness of purpose. There is to be no duplicity, no scheming deceit. Eliminates about half the employees on the planet. Third, the basis for obedience is seen at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. Fearing the Lord... Whatever you do, work heartily or with all your soul, is the literal translation, as for the Lord rather than for men. In other words, see, we're not men pleasers, we're Lord pleasers. Ephesians, Paul actually says the words that we are slaves of Christ. The idea of fearing the Lord simply means out of reverence for Christ because he sovereignly has you where you are, work hard for him. 
You're his slave. You're ultimately working for him. So do your work with all your heart, literally from your from, from all your soul from deep within you because you are working for Christ, not for men. Can you imagine how that would transform the work environment if people realized <laughs> they're not doing it ultimately for a boss. They're not doing it ultimately for a master. They're not even ultimately doing it for a paycheck. They're doing it ultimately for the Lord. Brings us to the fourth point. You see, there's something greater than a paycheck to be earned, verses 24 and 25. Speak of the Lord and punishment to come. Work heartily for the Lord, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward. And what is that reward? It is the reward of the inheritance. It is the inheritance of being children of God. Back in chapter 1, he called us, uh, um, he, he's called it the inheritance of the saints in light. It is receiving all that is yours because you belong to Christ. Stop right there. These were staggering words. See, we just read through and we, okay, get a little inheritance there. Staggering. This is unbelievable. People would have dropped their pens in the, in the audience as they were listening. What did he just say? Slaves had no inheritance. Zip. When you got free, when you got emancipated, you got the clothes on your back. Now get out. <laughs> As children of God who serve Him, they will receive the inheritance that is rightfully theirs. As heirs of God. We all know Galatians 3. We quote it all the time. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. But listen, the next verse says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, all of you. It doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or a woman or a slave. You're, a, you're, a, you're, a, you're an heir of God. He even says it in Ephesians, uh, the next chapter, Galatians 4, he says, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This was staggering. Paul finishes verse 24 of our text with, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The Lord Christ. That's an, unu that's an unusual wording. It's meant to be a play on words. There's a master. There's a Lord. It's the Lord Christ. Most translations have that as a statement of fact. Most commentators today agree that it's actually a command. Back in verse 22, he said, obey. Now in verse 24, he says, Serve the Lord Christ. 4, verse 25. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without par partiality. Lots of discussion about uh, that verse. What is this? Will receive the consequences of his wrongdoing. Two possibilities. Let me just very briefly outline them for you. It could be saying that as followers of Christ, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not, not for salvation, but to receive reward. And if we, if we do wrong, if, if we don't work heartily as for the Lord in, in whatever responsibilities that we have, we'll lose reward. That's a punishment. But it could also be that he's saying, um, you know, by your not working heartily for the Lord, you prove that you don't know him. You prove the reality of no faith. And, and you'll get the consequences of of that. Either way, the motivation, either way, 
the motivation is that we serve because we're not just working for paychecks. We're laying up treasures in heaven. We're going to be rewarded there. You don't think you get paid enough this morning for the work that you do? Don't worry. There is one who is, going, who is keeping the books, and you will be rewarded there. You say, but I, but I work really, really, really hard, and no one ever notices. Oh, there is one who notices. But I work really, really hard, and I never get the raises that I deserve. Oh, there is one who is keeping track. You will be rewarded. Now, before I make some obvious applications, which I just jumped to there, uh, to us as workers, I want you to notice some important nuances. This is where you need to take some notes. Uh, some nuances in what Paul writes. Because you see, many get upset that Paul does not call for the abolition of slavery. He, in fact, tells slaves to obey their masters. Why? Along with Colossians, he writes another letter. It's a letter, a personal letter that he writes to a, a guy named Philemon. And Philemon is a slave owner. And, and he sends this letter to Philemon with Onesimus, who was a slave runner, or excuse me, he was a runaway slave. And, and Paul sends this personal letter with Onesimus back to his master. What is, what is wrong with you, Paul? He's not a slave runner, he's a slave returner. Several things in these verses. First, notice that Paul directly addresses slaves. Again, this is staggering. You didn't do that. Aristotle had himself written a household code, and it was the prevailing thought of the day. He said, of necessity, households were made up of slaves and, and freemen, but a slave he called, quote, an animate article of property. Yeah, they move, they breathe, they talk. They don't talk very sensibly, uh, but they're animate articles of property. They were considered unable to, to, to take part in, 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 in rational discussion. Yeah, their lips move, they don't say anything. He says the slave is entirely without the faculty of deliberation. They can't think. This was the view of slaves. Animated articles of property without faculty for thoughtful conversation. They were seen as not worthy of moral instruction, and Paul addresses them directly and gives them, moral gives them more moral instruction than anybody else. It's incredible. It's obvious that they had the ability for rational and moral, the uh, capacity for ma uh, rational and moral discussion and to develop deep and meaningful relationships, starting with Christ. Second, there are a number of references to Christ being the Lord and for the slave to submit to Christ. This directly challenged the Hellenistic idea. Remember that cultural context, the idea that the man of the house was the sole authority figure. Paul says, yeah, there's an authority in your home and it is not you. There is one that your slave ultimately reports to. Obey him. Third, Paul qualifies masters as mere earthly masters. Yeah, obey your masters on earth. This directly limits the master's power to the earthly sphere, but there's one who sits at the right hand of the Father who is ultimately in control. Fourth, I've already mentioned it, but the slaves could expect an inheritance at a time when slaves were considered property, animated articles. Paul says, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. Fifth, and this is critically important, 
After addressing slaves, Paul will address masters, which means slaves and masters were in the same church, unlike our nation's history. This is unbelievable. In the household, they were slave and master, but in God's household, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. This was revolutionary. We actually sang it last week when we sang, Oh, Holy Night. We sang these words, I almost fell over. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Unbelievable. That's Christianity. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity in the Bible affirms slavery. It does not. It is true that Paul did not overtly call for the abolition of slavery. But he understood, regardless of the economic, social, and cultural context of his day, that followers of Christ were brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to see that more clearly in Philemon in just a few weeks. Did Paul know that Christianity would ultimately bring, listen to me, did Paul consciously know that, that Christianity would bring about the ultimate downfall of the institution of slavery. I have no idea, but it did. We must not be ignorant of history. So as we close, let me make some present applications for us as workers in our present history and culture, because the Bible is a timeless book, and this passage does speak to us today. I will move very quickly. First, we should treat our managers, our supervisors with deep respect, even if we think they don't deserve it, because we are ultimately serving Christ. And Paul actually told Timothy, his slave stuff is all over. He actually told Timothy, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Being a good worker, he says, will make the gospel attractive. And if you're not a good worker, it will detract from the gospel. He went on in the second verse of chapter 6. Even if your employer or manager is a Christian, don't take advantage of that. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brothers. We must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit, that those masters who partake of the benefit of your good work, they're, they're brothers and they're, and they're loved. They're believers. Second, we should do our work with a sincere heart with all of our soul and with a good attitude. Integrity and a good attitude ought to exemplify the work ethic and the work performance of every believer. Shame on you if you slide when the boss is not there. Because third, we don't just perform to make a good impression, but we are serving, recognizing it is ultimately Christ we serve. That means we give 100% when the boss is there or not because the boss, the master, is always there. 
I've said this before, Christians ought to be the hardest workers in the marketplace. I believe that with all my heart. Christians ought to be the hardest workers in the marketplace. I didn't say the most skilled, the most trained, the, the, the most educated. But they ought, no one ought to work harder than you. Because you are serving your Christ. Fourth, or next, we should make God's will the top priority in our life and work. This is taking the context of the household code. Everything that we do, we do ultimately, whether in word or deed, ultimately for the glory of God. Everything for the glory of God. Least the last thing. We remember that as we, ult- as we ultimately serve Christ who sees each one of us and we work really, really hard and sometimes are not rewarded here, we will be rewarded there. We look forward to a certain sure reward. Have you ever stopped to think that the work that you do Monday through Friday The work that you do Monday through Friday as a pharmacist or a banker or a clerk or a a, a dentist or a lawyer or a flipping burgers, have, have you ever stopped to think that the way that you do that brings glory to Christ? Have you ever stopped to think that the work that you do Monday through Friday, you will be rewarded for? You see, everything is spiritual because everything that we do in word or deed is for His glory. Stand for prayer.